Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold, and I think of Dietrich Bonhoeffer as probably one of the most remarkable martyrs and theologians of the 20th century. Although Bonhoeffer himself is not easy to grasp, thank goodness I have a guest. Dr. Joel Lawrence is with me today, and he's going to help us navigate uh, part of the way through the life and ministry and theology of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Joel is the uh, executive director of the Center for Pastor Theologians. He's got quite a resume. I'm going to spare him and not read it. Joel, welcome. <laughs> Thanks. Good to be here. You don't need to hear your resume, do you? No, I'm pretty familiar with yeah, it. Yeah, that's point what I time. thought. That's yeah, what I thought. I'm good. So I know that you have written books, a book on Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But I also uh, just want to say his l- legacy it has a in, uh, has a far-reaching influence on contemporary Christian culture today. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, Bonhoeffer is one of those people. I, I read a stat one time that he's the most quoted theologian of the 20th century. And uh, most people know of him. They've read quotes by him. Um, his theological legacy continues to endure. And uh, one of the, the challenging parts of him is because he's fairly quotable, oftentimes people hear quotes and snippets but kind of the totality of what he was about can be a little bit harder to to get our minds around. Yeah. But I, I think he's he's a super important figure and continues to to be uh, helpful for the church as yeah. we navigate the world. Yeah, I read Cost of Discipleship many many years ago mm-hmm. when my attention span was better. <laughs> right? Because <laughs> right? Yeah. you do need a good attention span to get through Bonhoeffer. You do, and if you want to uh, really test your attention span, you can dig into some of his earlier, <laughs> really yeah. theological, philosophical works. Yeah. But, so yeah. anyway, just to get things started, maybe we can talk about Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, for, and maybe start with the folks that may not be familiar with his work. Yeah. So um, you know, quick biography: Bonhoeffer lived from 1906 to 1945. I think probably what most people would be familiar with him for is his involvement in plot to assassinate Hitler. Um, he was part of the uh, uh, conspiracy, fairly minor part in, in many ways, but but certainly part of a conspiracy to overthrow Hitler. Um, you know, his, his theological legacy is really one of, you mentioned cost of discipleship. Yeah. I think that's kind of question of how do we follow the living Christ is one of the most profound things that he really centered on and his theology was centered on. He, he wrote uh, about, like I said, you know, kind of philosophical theology in his early days, a lot about the church, what it means to be the church, a lot about, um, as I said, what it means to be a follower of Jesus in the living Christ. And that was something that was actually fairly unusual in, in his time to really think about the resurrected Jesus, the present Jesus, especially in the German theological context of the time where German liberal theology had discounted 
the resurrection, had discounted a lot of what we would consider to be orthodox Christian theology. And he was tapping back into some of those themes, but at the lived level, not not just at the theological level, but really at the lived level. I think that's why he's he's pretty compelling to, to people. Yeah. So, Joel, what what is, I want to talk about what has moved you when it comes to Bonhoeffer and, and what has inspired you, because uh, you did write a book called Bonhoeffer, A Guide for the Perplexed. Yes. So you've spent time uh, studying this man. And I've been perplexed. So. <laughs> yes. yes. As many have. Yes, indeed. Yeah. So, um, you know, my I, I also, I picked up the cost of discipleship when I was in high school. It was okay. on my, my dad's library. My dad was a, a pastor, a seminary professor. It was in his library. I picked it up, read it. I don't remember like reading through it and being captured yeah. by it at the time. But when I was in my, uh, I was doing a master's program over in England and was transitioning into the, the doctorate, and uh, I didn't quite know what I wanted to do. I said, this is what I want to do. And then I went to my, my supervisor and said, I don't actually think what I said I want to do is what I want to do. <laughs> and she said, well, that usually happens. It usually doesn't happen in the first meeting, but it usually happens. So you need to go figure out what you want to do. So she just sent me away for a couple months to yeah. read and, and, and research and figure it out. And I, and I grabbed Bonhoeffer's lecture called, it's translated into English as Christ the Center, it was a series of Christology lectures that nice. he gave at the University of Berlin. And I started reading that. And it was just one of those moments, one of those times where like all this stuff that I had been churning on and thinking about and, and sensing, but not really know how to put it into words, he was, he was saying it. And so there was just like this immediate, not just an intellectual connection that I had, but really kind of a, uh, you know, a spiritual intellectual connection. He's thinking about stuff that I sensed was really important for my own personal life, Mm -hmm. but also for the life of the church. And, and that's really been, that's really borne out. One of the great gifts I feel I've received in my life is to have the opportunity to study someone that isn't just kind of a dry intellectual exercise, but was really grappling with significant questions of faith at a significant time when the church needed to be grappling with significant mm-hmm. questions of faith. And he continues just to, to bless me and encourage me in my own thinking. Sweet. Uh, Joel, let's jump into some um, Bonhoeffer um, meat. Let's, yeah. let's grab some meat and discuss it. Yeah. I mean, tell me something that you really love that he wrote, that you've grappled with, that you have thought about, that you've written about, that will be a real blessing to listeners today. So my favorite book of his is actually one of the, the lesser known books. It's called Creation and Fall. It was, uh, it's a theological exposition of Genesis 1 to 3. Awesome. And he's writing it uh, in the winter semester of 1932-1933. January 33 is when Hitler comes to power. Okay. A mile down the road. Wow. From where he's lecturing. He's okay. lecturing at the University of Berlin. This is taking, you know, Hitler's taking power at the Reichstag a mile down the road. Wow. And Bonhoeffer's lecturing on creation and fall on the story of Genesis. And what really has captured me about that book is Bonhoeffer bringing to life what I like to think of as the dustiness of humanity, like the the material part of humanity that is inseparable from our from our spiritual being but the earthiness of life and he he's thinking about god as creator creating adam out of the dust and breathing in the life of god in a way that has really helped me to think about what god intended for us as humans and that our material selves are not a degradation 
of our spiritual selves. We're created to be this combination of mm. dust and breath, mm-hmm. of, of dirt and life. And in that comes a very celebratory mood that, that I think runs through Bonhoeffer's theology. He talks later in his prison letters about the importance of the Old Testament and recognizing God establishes parties regularly for Israel to celebrate his goodness, to celebrate the creation and the creator and to worship the creator. And I think for me that that has really been an important work in helping me to understand my own humanity, the humanity of the world around us, the deep need of the fallen world around us. But but to grapple with that need, not in a escapist kind of a spiritualizing way that can demean the the material part of who mm-hmm. we are, but that really lifts that up into the fullness of our, our faith and our life with God, encompassing all of our lives and the totality of our lives. So mm-hmm. that's something that, that Bonhoeffer really, I think, understood well is the the totality of faith that it's not just a segment of our lives but it it demands all of who we are the cost of discipleship takes up all of who we are Mm -hmm. Bonhoeffer said silence in the face of evil is evil itself Mm. I would love for you to let our listeners know about what Bonhoeffer did so um confronting Hitler yeah in the as as Hitler was rising to power early on Bonhoeffer was seeing this is not going in in a good direction right a lot of the people around him even people who you know there's a group called the the confessing church who were pastors that were resisting Hitler's takeover of of the church but who weren't necessarily resisting nazism mm. right they didn't like that Hitler was overstepping his the boundaries between church and state that had been a part of the German the German uh, world. But it wasn't that they were set against Nazism or this desire to see Germany re-elevated to what they believed was its its rightful place. Bonhoeffer early on was very, very nervous about this. So throughout the 30s, he was confronting these ideas. Uh, in the late 30s, he uh, be- was uh, drafted into... German service into what was called the Abwehr, the the German military, uh, the uh, intelligence Mm -hmm. section of the German military. And through that, he had a lot of information about what the Nazis were doing. So he he joined a conspiracy group. This was a conspiracy group of military leaders whose aim was to overthrow the Nazi government, to, uh, to assassinate Hitler, and then to take control themselves to direct Germany to end the war and move to a peaceful settlement. Uh, Bonhoeffer had lived in England for a number of years and during that time made built a relationship with a, a bishop named George Bell. And Bishop Bell sat in the House of Lords. Many of the bishops in England sit in the House of Lords. And so that was kind of a conduit to the British government. So Bonhoeffer was a go-between between the German conspirators and the British government kind of feeding information back and forth. Um, so he wasn't, you know, involved at the heart of the conspiracy. He wasn't the one who was going to set the bomb that was going to kill Hitler, but he really wrestled with what do you do in this kind of a situation when up is down and down is up? What is your, the, the question he asked himself is what is my responsibility? And he makes it clear he wasn't asking the question, what is the right thing to do? 
in his mind, there was no real right thing to do. He felt anything that he did was going to bring guilt upon himself. Mm -hmm. His question was, what would I rather stand before God having done? And for him, the answer was, I need to act in this way, as he talked about, to put a spoke in the wheel, to, to, to do something about the machine that is killing people. And um, he never did that with the kind of confidence of I'm doing the thing I should be doing or I know exactly that this is the right thing to do. He got to the point of saying that's just not the proper question in this context to be able to, to answer. So he begins his ethics, his book on ethics, saying the thing you have to do when you come to ethics is the thing that most you have to do away with the thing that most people are coming to do, which is to answer the question, how can I be good and how can I do good? Mm-hmm. And he says, that's not the right ethical question. The right ethical question is what's the will of God? And we're not always going to know that in its fullness. And yet we still have a responsibility to act. We still need to do something and take upon guilt if that is uh, part of what we are called to do. And stand before God then appealing to his grace and mm. doing the best that we can. It's oh, really solid. Bonhoeffer also says being a Christian is less about cautiously avoiding sin than about courageously and actively doing God's will. Yeah. So th- this is something he, he was, uh, I think, is an important part of his legacy. Um, and and he, he talks about this in a number of different places, but one of the things he says in his little book called Life Together, it's a, around a, the confession of sin. He's talking about the confession of sin. And, and as he's talking about that, he he is reflecting on this question, right, of um, is the issue here in our grappling with our own sin is our desire that whatever situation we're in, that we come out clean on the other side, or is our desire that we serve those around us, even if that means sometimes we will take on guilt. Now that's not a kind of a carte blanche. You can just go sin. You can just go Mm -hmm. do whatever you want to do. He has a very, um, very detailed, I I think a very solid understanding of, of righteousness and, and obedience. But he also wants to take the focus of our lives off of ourselves. Yeah. And sometimes the problem that we have is in our desire to be clean or in our desire to avoid sin, we might actually be locking ourselves into a sinful posture of only thinking about ourselves or primarily thinking about ourselves. So good. So he he talks about being for others. That's a critical component of his theology. Jesus was the man for others. Therefore, we are called to be the church for yeah. others, and we, we can't be focused and locked in on ourselves if we're going to do that. That I want to keep talking about after the break. Dr. Joel Lawrence is my guest. He's written a book on Bonhoeffer called The Guide for the Perplexed, and we'll be right back. Okay. We would love for you to share your story about why you love Faith Radio and what has Faith Radio change the way you think about something or even how you live. We want to hear from you. Your story can encourage others and glorify God. Share what you love about Faith Radio by calling 877-933-2484 and leaving a message today.
I'm back with Dr. Joel Lawrence, although I just call him Joel. He's the executive director of the Center for Pastor Theologians, and he's uh, loves Dietrich Bonhoeffer's written a book about him. It's called Bonhoeffer, A Guide for the Perplexed. And Joel uh, had a great question come in. I don't know. It's a longer question. I think the next question I'm going to ask, you might be able to wrap it into this one that uh, just got asked online, but how can uh, Bonhoeffer's story shape our life today? Yeah, so I... When I speak about Bonhoeffer, when I when I lecture about Bonhoeffer, um, you know, I, I get a lot of questions around kind of his actions in the conspiracy, um, the work, uh, what he was doing in the in the late 30s and early 40s. Uh, I, I think you know people kind of approach it as the Bonhoeffer as ethical case study. Did he do the right thing, and should we emulate the things that he did? And, and as I said earlier, um, he wasn't framing it up as is this the right thing. He was framing it up as what is the will of God, what is my responsibility? I think rather than looking at Bonhoeffer of the 40s, I think Bonhoeffer of the mid-1930s is, is really in, instructive for us. Uh, in the mid-30s, he's really wrestling with what the church ought to do in the face of the rise of, of Hitler and how the church ought to respond to this. And what becomes very concerning for him is what he sees in many of the church leaders is this selfish attitude that we were discussing before the break this kind of how are we going to fare through this how can we keep our authority through this how can we keep our place through this and Bonhoeffer is is deeply concerned about that kind of approach to thinking about the church's relationship to the world he wants to encourage the church to think about what it means, what truly what it means to take up our cross and to deny ourselves, to lay down our, our very lives for Christ. And in his wrestling with this in the, in the mid thirties, he's developing this idea of what it means for us to follow after Jesus who truly laid down his life. And in doing that to give up some of the things that we've been used to, to give up some of the the advantages that we perhaps have had in our in our culture. And as I think about where we are as the church today in wrestling with a lot of these questions about what's going on in the culture and, and cultural change, I think one of the the concerns that Bonhoeffer would want us to wrestle with is is our approach to the culture around us more about protecting ourselves or is it more about laying down our lives and following Jesus for the world that that is lost and even for the world that may despise followers of Jesus to not kind of pull in and seek our own but to release things that we have been used to for the sake of loving our world with the love of Christ and demonstrating to our world the grace of God. It sounds like Bonhoeffer's getting right to the point. He he doesn't beat around the bush. Mm, a whole yeah, lot. exactly. And yeah. It's, it's quite convicting. And what he he's always taking us to the cross. He's I, I always love that. taking us to the cross. Yeah, yeah I, and I, and I, I think that's again, I think that's really helpful for us in our time to really reflect on what does it mean to have the cross at the center of our lives as followers of Christ? Mm-hmm. Joel, in, in your book, uh, you do mention in chapter six, religionless Christianity. Yeah. And I would love for you to uh, tease us with that a little. So at, toward the end of his life, Bonhoeffer's in prison. He was arrested in 1943. He was part of this 
being part of this conspiracy. Um, and while he's in prison, he's doing uh, he's got a lot of time and he's doing a lot of reflecting on the failures of, of the Christian church in Germany mm-hmm. throughout his life and what's going to come next. He's reflecting on what's going to happen after the war. Right? I think at that point in time, especially he's getting into 1944 when some of these letters are being written, um, he is the, – the turning of the tide has happened. It's becoming fairly clear that the Allies are going to win the war. And so he's thinking about what's what's next for the church. And in thinking about that, he's, he's thinking about the culture. Um, one of the things that he is deeply concerned about is that because of some of the failures of the church in the 30s to to um, love the world around us and instead be very self-protective, he's concerned that the church had lost its, its right to speak the gospel. Wow. And it's going to need a time to regain that right. And that's not going to happen through the church's action. That's going to happen through the Holy Spirit. The Holy, he, he talks about uh, after the war, there's going to just be, need to be a period of time where, for he, what he says, the church is going to have to be about prayer and loving our neighbor and allow the spirit of God to revive the church. Now he's thinking about that in the context of what the, where the world is going, where the culture is going. And he's in the German European context, of course. But this idea of religionless Christianity, it got interpreted for a number of years after the war, after his writings started to get kind of disseminated as Bonhoeffer gave up his faith or Bonhoeffer became an atheist. That's not true at all. It's very mm-hmm. clear from his writings that he was deeply committed to Christ till, till the end. Um, what he is saying, though, is a lot of the forms that our faith has taken, a lot of the cultural forms that our faith has taken, those are going to need to be stripped away. And there's some things about that that he's using this language of religionless Christianity to say the forms of religion that have kind of structured the Christian West, some of those forms are going to be swept away with the war. And Christianity is going to still be very committed to Jesus and and following Christ, but the form of it will need to change in the post-war world. Mm -hmm. So in those prison letters, he's really doing some pretty interesting things and he's wrestling with some, some really challenging concepts for us to, to understand the context of what he is saying. Mm -hmm. Joel, I had a listener that said, can Joel give the uh, listeners an idea what it looks like practically to give up some things we, the church are comfortable with? Well, I think, uh, yeah, that's a a huge uh, question and conversation. I, I think, you know, in our time and in our place as we're wrestling with what it means for us to to be the church in America where frankly we have been fairly used to having a pretty easy go of it as as Christians as our culture is changing I think one of the questions we really have to wrestle with is are we going to battle against the culture to retain our own or are there things that we need to let go of that we need to release and allow the spirit of God, similarly at the time that Bonhoeffer was saying, to bring some new forms of our own living out of Christianity to ourselves. Mm-hmm. I didn't book enough time for you today, Joel. I'm going to punish myself. No dessert tonight for me. <laughs> That's fair. That's I fair. have to do something. <laughs> I'll right? have to. I'll have to. It's got to be loud and clear. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah. But uh, do come back. I want to continue this. Uh, I know a lot of people are very interested in Bonhoeffer, as am I. Yeah. And next time we get together, I will reread Cost of Discipleship, or try to. There you go. And that way I'll, uh, we'll, we'll continue, because uh, I, I want to 
keep this going. Thank you very much for being Absolutely. here. Absolutely. Thanks yeah. for having me. It's great. Yeah. It did right. go fast, didn't it? It did really fast. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, Dr. Joel Lawrence has been my guest, and we're going to take a break, and we come back. Dennis Allen is going to join me. We're going to talk about the discipleship dilemma. Be right back. show. If you just joined me, I'm so glad you uh, tuned in. Now, every day I try to be in a good mood, and I think today I'm in a good mood. But sometimes when I reveal information, it does not make me stay in a good mood. Like things like uh, absolute truth does not exist for 40% of Christians. That's troubling to me. Talking about faith is not my job for 35% of Christians. And 92% of Christians do not believe sharing their faith is important. So that's a problem. We've got a disciple dilemma, and Dennis Allen is my guest. He's written a book called The Disciple Dilemma, Rethinking and Reforming How the Church Does Discipleship. I had him on a while back, and this is part two. Nice to have you back on, Dennis. Hello, Bill. Great to be back with you. Yeah, you sound great today, almost like you got a new microphone. (laughs) You got me. (laughs) Well, last time you were on, we talked about the symptoms of the dilemma and the causes of the dilemma. Maybe we could just do a very short uh, reminder of that. Great. Here's the soundbite that we would hope folks would listen to. One, the dilemma is coming for your kids, coming for your grandkids, and probably coming for you. In all likelihood, we've all been infested, infected, hacked by this dilemma. There's symptoms we could talk about, but we really want to get to the causes, the symptoms we can all see in Christianity today. And there's a bunch of those we could kick around as we go along, but the causes are really, really a big deal. But even beyond that, as a church, as leaders, I hope who are listening on your show will think, we've got to go after the causes as leadership. If we don't go after the causes as leadership, we don't fix the dilemma. It's not going to get fixed waiting on others to fix it. Mm Mm-hmm. Exactly. So maybe we can fast forward a little bit to the second half of your book, The Disciple Dilemma by Dennis Allen, and we can uh, maybe talk about uh, ways to uh, address and steps to go forward and um, action to take. Well, terrific. Thanks. The, the problem setup that we just described that Bill and I talked about earlier on the show is that this problem has been circulating around us for 1,800 years. So both from the professional side and the people in the pews, we're kind of steeped in a culture that makes us all think everything's good, right, and normal. The only way we're going to change this, I'm going to start at the high level and drill down. The only way we're going to change this is for leadership to change the culture, the fabric, the DNA, the chemistry, the social momentum of the Christian communities, usually churches, that we live in. If we keep living with the Western ethos of the disciple dilemma, we're going to keep cranking out randomly a few disciples, but largely fragile, brittle ones. So we have to start with how do we change the culture? 
And all right, now I'm very interested. <laughs> How do we do that? Yeah, the first piece of this puzzle that I want to offer up is I, I'm, a, I'm a business guy. I'm not a theologian. So my world has been going into struggling corporations. We joked last time, I'm into corporate repentance. You know, the word repentance means to turn around. Mm-hmm. So I'm into repentance. I try to help corporations turn around. And one of the things that we see is when corporations, organizations, groups of people don't understand their mission, they wander. The culture becomes random. It kind of goes to whatever's popular in the culture, building brand, building power, building affinity, building tribes, building social causes, and so on. And I hope a few people are listening to some of those adjectives and adverbs and going, oh, yeah, that kind of sounds a little like the church. We've got to get back to the primary mission that Jesus Christ laid out in the Bible. This is what Christians do. This is what churches do. Here's the base mission. We've got to focus on that first piece. What's the mission of the church? Yeah, amen to that. All right, let's talk about uh, learning. We have, we have great resources and material. What's missing there? This is the interesting part. I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up, Bill, because we tend to think of the problem as conquered by learning. In other words, education of the people in the pews is the answer. It is a piece of this. It's a really important piece of this. But this is something you and I have talked about before. We don't want pastors to get on a guilt trip or live under shame burdens or the I'm defective or my church is defective mentality. It's absolutely not that. The process that we're about to talk about, which includes education, which includes worship, it includes praise, mission trips, ministries, small groups, and all these things, begins with us as a group recognizing that we're off the biblical track. And education, one piece of this, has to be tied to relationships, into the development or the making of disciples, and into all of us following Christ. So there's four pieces, education being one, relationships being one, making more disciples, and then all of us following Christ. If we start to think about that as leaders, we start on the journey of turning our culture around and getting on the mission Christ gave us. Hmm, so good. And I, I, I think, Dennis, when you look at the battle that's going on between light and darkness in the world today, if we're not fully equipped disciples, we are not going to make a difference. Yeah, we're not salt and light then, are we? We're just no. so otter that's laying around on the ground, just like all the other groups that are trying to fix things. Yeah, and if we're part of that group of Christians that don't believe sharing their faith is important, or saying that uh, our faith is, um, living out our faith is better than talking about it, there's a big percentage of people that feel that, and I think that's a very important thing to do, but we also, faith comes from hearing and hearing by the Word of God. We need to speak the words to our friends and neighbors and coworkers and everyone else in our in our circle of influence. And part of the cultural dilemma that we notice in the research when it talks about people who feel like they can't share their faith or it's not their job to share their faith is there's there's an idea. And by the way, what I'm about to say, I, I mentioned this on the last show. If you really don't like what I'm saying, you can blame Bill because he let me on the show. <laughs> is it, it is the idea that we we have a, a general sense that everybody is supposed to be a Billy Graham. Everybody's supposed to be an evangelist. And the New Testament, Paul makes it really plain. Some of us are that, but not all of us are that. But here's the big but. 
Every single one of us has no option in Christ but to be a disciple who has a reason for the hope to give an answer to people who ask you. That's a different play than feeling like everybody's got to get in a pulpit. Everybody's got to get a bullhorn and stand on a street corner and scream the gospel, which may be perfectly fine for some. We all have to come back to this idea. Are we ready to try to walk alongside another and give them, when they ask, the reason Mm -hmm. for the hope? Yeah. And and I would say, Bill, one of the pieces before I, I hand it back to you to toss me a hardball on this is many times in Christian culture, as we look at the research, People believe they have to debate, tribalize, demand, politicize, cause, woke, or demand that people conform to a moral agenda before we're willing to give them the reason for the hope that's within us, when in fact, as a disciple, our job is to reverse that and to walk alongside people till they say, Bill, you're really weird. What makes you tick? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I get that all the time, Dennis, so thanks for letting everyone know that I'm weird. Um, (laughs) <laughs> but First uh, Peter doesn't let uh, let us off the hook about sharing our hope that we have. You know, Paul says not. that some of you are uh, some of you are teachers, some of you are evangelists, but not everyone. Some are. But First Peter says no. It's all of our jobs to uh, share the hope we have in Christ with others. It's not a go and sell or a go and yell. It mm-hmm. is when we're asked, and we should live in a way so that people do ask. And in there is this core of changing a culture so that disciples really do look, I'm going to use the word weird, out there in the world. Mm-hmm. So as I talk about this with the leadership of the communities that we're speaking to, we're trying to say, look, we're not trying to blow up your church. We're not trying to condemn the size of your church or the denomination of your church or even the things that you guys think are important. But we are asking you to say, if in fact, Christ has called you as leaders to lead and not simply manage, then let's lead in the mission Christ gave us and start the the revolving turn of our culture back from modern Western discipling, which doesn't work, back to the model Jesus gave us, version 1.0, discipling. Yeah, I want to talk about that. Dennis Allen is my guest. He's written a book called The Disciple Dilemma, Rethinking and Reforming How the Church Does Discipleship. So let's go back to Discipleship 1.0 versus Discipleship 2.0. Newer isn't always better, is it? Newer is not always better. And a bunch of us came to a conclusion about 1,800 years ago, hey, I think Jesus forgot about this, but we've got a better idea. Let's get around that model he built and really make it work. And we all bought into it, and we think it's absolutely normal today. That's version 2.0. Version 2.0. 1.0 is what we want to get back to, which I think is where you're about to tee the question up. Yeah, and that is. What is version 1.0? So we look at the idea that Christ gave us, which is you have to follow me. That doesn't mean follow like on Facebook. That means like we are up and moving with the skills, the equipping, the vocational gifts that God has given us into the culture following Christ. It's not about my resume. It's about my following. That's the amazing thing I'm seeing in the New Testament when he talks about you have to deny yourself, my personal agenda, using my vocational skills, my equipping, the things that I'm called to, whether it's as a parent, pastor, proctologist, or plumber, right? Whatever we're called to do, to do that in following Christ. And then we get all these pieces that Jesus gave us in this version 1.0. 
denying myself, taking up a cross, counting the cost, surrendering and sloughing off so that my life is no longer my own. Mm. There's some big phrases, right? Mm. Yeah, no kidding. We were just in the last half hour talking about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Oh, yeah. Oh, what a fabulous conversation with a guy who really got it. Cost of discipleship, right? What a, what a fabulous yeah. conversation. Yeah. Dennis, so let's talk about uh, real-life uh, discipleship. You're out there with another disciple or other disciples trying to live practically and interact as a follower of Christ. How do, how, how do we best do that? This is one of the great things. We talked about education a moment ago, and the church has so much resource in terms of stuff you get online, what your pastors are preaching about, which is beautiful and wonderful. But this relationship piece, Bill, this is such an absent concept. There, there are certainly small groups. We all get together in a small group. We have our men's group, our women's group. We have our Sunday school classes. We have our seminars. But the relationship where I'm going out with, a, we call them a wingman, right, like in a fighter pilot concept, you're flying close formation with another alongside you in real life, so much so that Bill can look at Dennis and say, you know, I know you really well, and I know something's not okay with you, or I know you really well, and you are rocking, baby. You're <laughs> the Do it, and go, go, go. And we in the Christian church like to be lone wolves, needing nothing from nobody, and I just go catch church, and then I don't need no Bill in my life. Yeah. I just cruise through life. Mm. Yeah, that's a problem. That is definitely a problem. And more isolation and, and more disconnect is not the answer. This is so important that we remember that we need that wingman. We need the community in a larger gathering of faith. We need pastors who can talk to us about the gnarly complex issues that we face and their theological wisdom. We need small groups. We need Sunday school classes. We need mission trips. We need ministries. We need all those things. But what we're missing in the church, leaders, I'm pleading with you to consider this. We're missing that winsome ability where Bill walks up and puts his arm around Dennis and says, Dennis, Jim over there needs a wingman, and I'm asking you two to team up and go do that together. Mm -hmm. And and Dennis, that should be joyful, shouldn't it? Should be a fabulous experience unless you're an American. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, way more fun than sitting on the 50-yard line and, and having an afternoon of just doing nothing. And we have converted Christianity into that idea of we let the pros get out on the football field and play. Our job is to sit on the sidelines and just go, rah, yay. <laughs> yeah. Right? But we are called to get on the playing field. Yeah, absolutely. Dennis Allen is my guest. He has uh, written a book called The Disciple Dilemma, Rethinking and Reforming How the Church Does Discipleship. I'm going to take a break, but when I come back, I want to ask Dennis about concierge Christianity. What is it and why is it a big problem? Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting myfaithradio.com.
Welcome back to the show. Dennis Allen is my guest. He's a CEO. He's an author. He's a speaker. He is an alumnus of the Oxford Center for Christian Apologetics in Oxford and also is MBA from Xavier University in Cincinnati and a six-time turnaround CEO. So he knows what he's doing. He's organized. He's written a book called The Disciple Dilemma, Rethinking and Reforming How the Church Does Discipleship. Jesus said, go make disciples. How important that is. Dennis, right before the break, I was going to mention about concierge Christianity. What is it, and why is it a huge problem? What we've done, and this dates again back to the 4th century, we've created a culture going back to the 4th century, teaching all of us it's absolutely normal for the pew people to sit in the pew, the pro guy to get in the pulpit, mm-hmm. you let the kids go to their program, I drink my latte, I catch your sermon, I feel really good about that. I pick up the kids. I go home. I'm done, and you pros need to go out and evangelize the world and get people to talk about Jesus. And we as a culture, this is not a blame on the pastor today. Please don't hear that. Thank you for saying that. The culture is teaching us inside Christian Western discipleship, you're supposed to be in the pew, keeping quiet, dropping some money in the plate, and you're not supposed to work. And the pastors are supposed to do all the heavy lifts. And this is an enablement of sloth in discipleship. Hmm. Those are hard words. They're hard words to hear. But It is a problem for us to face the fact that every one of us, I think, is a disciple. And that in the original model of discipleship, we were all out there together talking about the reason for the hope that was within us and baptizing folks and bringing them along. This isn't saying that we want to have everybody in the church running down front and saying, I'll take care of the baptism this week. Let's keep church order and everything in good stead. But but at the end of the day, we've all got to realize that nobody is exempt from taking up their cross and fully pursuing Christ as they have been called. And again, that's joyful. What a delight. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, um, Os Guinness has got a book out recently called The Great Quest, and he is trying to pursue the fact that we have lost meaning, purpose, and destiny in our Christian ethos because we don't understand how joyful it is to know who we are in Christ as opposed to personally looking at my navel and hoping I can find my identity and my meaning in the small things that are inward rather than the meaning and the purpose and the joy that Christ has given us in pursuing him. Mm, I love that. It's a real rallying cry for all of us. Uh, Dennis, I know that a lot of millennials are walking away from the church. What has discipleship had to do with that? We caused it, and I'll tell you how we've caused that. What we have done is we have tried to smother so much of the millennial generation with tribal thinking. You have to think this way. You have to be on this side of the political fence. You have to think this way about people who aren't like you. You have to be able to debate people on the ground. And I think largely the millennials would tell you, we've seen a lot of cruelty that does not seem to conform to Christ. We have seen a lot of divisiveness that sounds a lot like the political parties. We've seen a lot of tribalism that seems like it goes along with just everything else we're hearing. So why... Should we stick around with you guys when we can be with our friends who think like us and do like us? We're out of here. Hmm. Dennis Allen is my guest. His book is The Disciple Dilemma. Um, Dennis, talk about a mass production of discipleship. Is that a good idea or is that not a good idea? 
I'm going to start with a headline, not a good idea, but I want to tell you why we're where we are. We are where we are because of Emperor Constantine. How's that for a start? Whoa, you've already lost me. Okay, so let's, <laughs> let's, let's unpack that one a little bit. I All know right. I didn't lose, but I'm going to try anyway to unpack it just so it sounds reasonable. We used to be a gathering of churches at the time of Jesus' walk on the earth and upon his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of fives and sixes and tens. And when Constantine came along, the persecuted church who was huddling, being destroyed, constantly being chased and hounded, suddenly became legitimate, famous, trendy, and in. And when it did, these churches no longer had five people at the door. They had 500 people at the door. They started packing them in the pews. And as you can imagine, if you were a pastor of five and the next day 500 are showing up, you're going to probably just pack them in and try to figure out how you handle this later. And the way we handled it was, you guys all get inside, sit up, shut down, and we'll just we'll 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 deal with you when we get a chance. And the church became crowded, underserved in the individual responsibility of me being a disciple, and overserved by the professionals just trying to keep everybody moving ahead. And eventually, we started replicating people who don't understand what it means to be a disciple who don't know how to talk about the hope within them, and who really don't even want to follow Christ. Wow. All right, so let's look at this. This might be hard to say, but maybe we have created some fragile disciples, possibly timid believers, and there's been uh, an exodus of people leaving the church. So... What what do we need to do to return to strength and vigor and make a difference in the world today? Here's my plea to leaders. If you really want to grow your church, stop trying to grow your church. If you really want to grow your church, as Christ told us that he would build up the church, we need to turn to the job of making disciples. Sometimes that's not really glamorous. It doesn't get the big, splashy headlines but the one becomes two, the two becomes four. And if you look at the math model of discipling as Christ gave it to us versus hoping the guy in the pulpit can sell everybody in the room to pick up on their discipleship, the math model of Christ, one makes two, two makes four, you will overrun the earth as you make disciples in that model. That's how we build a church, not brands and not commercials and not venues. It is in discipleship. Mm-hmm. Some of the statistics, Dennis, and I, I mentioned a couple at the top of the show, when I think of that roughly 80% of church-attending Protestants don't have much spiritual development outside of the worship service, uh, that's not going to equip people to be salt and light in the world. Not that they're not having great services at church, but I think we need to be better equipped. There's a problem with the clericalism that we've talked about, this concierge Christianity, because it says, I know that Bill and I know the pastors, they've got the answers. We can always call Bill on the show. We can always wait for the pastor to give us an answer. And we simply just are being entertained instead of deeply developed to be able to go into the outside world and give people the reason for the hope that is within us when they ask. Mm -hmm. I do get a number of people that will text into the show and they will admit that they they have a little bit of timidity when it comes to sharing their faith or they will get a gotcha question that comes up so fast that they feel like they get derailed quickly. 
I love my experience at the Oxford Center for Christian Apologetics. I thought I was going to go over there and they were going to throw an encyclopedia at me and say, memorize all this stuff. <laughs> they said instead was, stop trying to have an answer for everything. Get to know the human being, the imago Dei, the image of God standing in front of you, and together walk with them through their questions. And you won't have the answers, but look to the one who does and the scripture that can give you those answers. That's apologetics. That's discipleship. Mm-hmm. So we want to affirm pastors today. We want to let them uh, know that we love them, care about them, and understand how much is on their plate. There's a lot going on in their world. 48% of pastors are trying to get out of doing what they do because it is such an overloaded, shame-based, how come, pastor, you didn't pick up my political agenda or my tribal wow. agenda or my mission? What a tough life. We need to love and support our pastors and pastors. I'm asking you not to work harder. I'm asking you to reach out to some leaders amongst you and start rebuilding the mission of making disciples because that will liberate your life and it will liberate the people in your life to be pursuers of Christ. Mm -hmm. I read some other statistic, Dennis, and of course I can't find it right now because the pressure's on, but I want to say that people were tithing more during the Great Depression than they are today. Yeah, we're off 30% from the Great Depression. In the Great Depression, when we were under far more financial stress than we are today, the average give was 33% higher on the gross than today's disciple. That's amazing. Yeah, so interesting. Dennis, thank you for taking time today. It's been great having you on the show again. Bill, thanks for letting me come stir up the pot. Yeah, and you do stir up the pot. It's always good. Thank you so much. We'll have you back. Lord bless you. Yeah, God bless you, and have a great weekend. Dennis Allen has been my guest. The book he wrote is called The Disciple Dilemma, Rethinking and Reforming How the Church Does Discipleship. All right, we're going to, let's see, we'll take a break. we got hour two ahead, and Dr. Mark Muska asked the professor. We're going to get all kinds of wisdom in hour two as we got wisdom in hour one. It's been a great day. Thanks for being with me today. I love spending time with you. If you have not downloaded the Faith Radio app, I really encourage you to do it. You will love it. Put it on your smartphone and then give it a try. I think you'll enjoy it. We'll take a break and be right back with Hour 2. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.